Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast. I have uh, John Hagel. He's a co-chairman for Deloitte LLP Center for the Edge uh, with nearly 40 years of experience as a management consultant, an author, speaker, and an entrepreneur. Uh, he serves as a senior vice president of strategy at Atari and as a founder of two Silicon Valley startups. He's the author of some books, too, The Power of Pull, Net Gain, Net Worth, Out of the Box, and The Only Sustainable Edge. So we're going to talk about uh, what's, what's known as the future of work. John, thanks for coming. I appreciate the opportunity. Thank you. Yeah. Well, first of all, um, a definition when you talk about the future of work, is it the near future or the far future or a mixture of both? You know, it's a mixture of both. I think that uh, the, the topic has become so widely discussed and used. It depends on who you're talking about. Um, we tend to favor an approach that we call zoom out, zoom in, that if you're really focusing on the future, you need to zoom out 10 to 20 years, have a real sense of where things are headed, and then zoom back in and focus very much on the next six to 12 months and what specific actions can you take to accelerate your movement towards that future. So are you a you're not just a passive observer of what's going to happen. You want to be active in creating that future. Absolutely. We're big believers in the potential and opportunity to shape the future, to really uh, help uh, move it in directions that are going to create more opportunity for people versus other futures that are perhaps much more dystopian. So is it a balance between making current people's work more enjoyable and fulfillable or allowing more people to work if they wish to? Like, what, what are some of the goals that, that say, oh, well, work is better now, you know, X number of years from now than it, than it currently is? Well, our, our perspective based on the work we've done is that while they, um, there's, again, huge discussion around the future of work, covering everything from reskilling to the gig economy to uh, unemployment and an infinite number of topics. The one topic that really is not on the agenda, but we believe needs to because it's ultimately the key to the future of work, is the question of what should work be for human beings. And, you know, I, I'm going to overgeneralize perhaps, but I would say that at least again, based on the work we've done, most work in most companies, especially large companies or large organizations, not just companies, but large institutions, most work is basically tightly specified, highly standardized tasks that you do in a very repetitive way. And uh, that was the key to uh, institutional success for over a century. The institutions that managed to get people to do those kinds of routine tasks accomplished a lot. The challenge we see right now and the opportunity is that, frankly, if that's what work is, machines can do that so much better than we human beings can. Routine, tightly specified tasks, machines do that without getting distracted, without making mistakes, without getting sick, 
let the machines take that work. Our view is that should have never been work for humans to begin with. It had to be because there was nothing, there were no other options, but now there are options and it gives the potential to really step back and say, okay, if machines are gonna take the work that we were doing, what work could we as humans be doing that would have much more impact? And again, at a high level, we, we focus on what we call redefining work and, and really focusing everyone in an organization on addressing unseen problems and opportunities to create more value wherever they are in the organization. And our view is there's infinite potential to create more value. The problem is workers have just been so consumed with those routine tasks, they haven't even seen the problems and opportunities, much less address them. Now they can do that. And that's something that we as humans should be doing and I think will be much more fulfilling work than the work we've been doing in the past. Any great case studies that you, you've been involved in or you think are great examples of the shift and what happened? Yeah, I should say that all our work, uh, all our research is based on case studies. So if uh, anyone listening to this is interested, they should definitely um, go search uh, for the Center for the Edge, and uh, we publish all our research reports. They're freely available. The case studies are all in there. Um, I, I would say just as one example, we, we looked at a, a company that um, in the uh, clinical diagnostics business, and they, uh, their call centers, they, they were having problems with customer turnover, customers' unhappiness, and it turned out the call centers they, the customers were, were frustrated when they, when they went to the call center. They weren't getting their problems effectively addressed, and so they were getting frustrated and leaving. Um, the, the company basically took that as an opportunity to say, okay, we have a problem here. The workers who are best equipped to deal with this problem, to address this problem, are the workers on the front line in the call center. So they went to the call center workers, and they said, number one, we're going to guarantee that you're not going to lose your jobs. Uh, you're going to continue working for us. But your first assignment is to figure out how to get technology to take over more and more of the routine tasks that you're doing and the, those routine scripts that you've been following in your call center uh, work and get that handed off to the machine. Have websites that can be much more effective in answering those kinds of routine customer questions. And that will free you up as call center operators to really focus on the, the challenging problems, on unforeseen problems and uh, questions that the customers have. And then they organize the workers into pods, small groups, where they could problem solve together and help each other get to better and better answers to, to the uh, questions that uh, had not been anticipated from the customer. From the uh, bottom line, okay. customer satisfaction significantly increased, um, worker satisfaction significantly increased because finally they were doing things that really uh, made a difference versus just following the script. So did their jobs change to different jobs or what was the long-term impact? Well, the, the job was still a call center operator, but the, the job was very different in the sense that it was no longer the, the routine questions that you know the scripts could answer. It was really focusing on the questions that customers were asking that nobody had seen before or heard before, being creative about how to, how to respond to those questions. How much of their jobs, on average, were they able to automate that they didn't have to do anymore? 
you know, it's hard to quantify. I'd say probably around 80% of the work they were doing could be automated, that, that they had been doing. But now again, yeah, it, it freed them up to really invest the time and effort on the, the questions that really mattered, the non-routine questions. If given the chance, I mean, do most workers want to do this? Or, you know, are, is there a big section of workers that just wants to show up and do the minimum and get paid and they don't care even if you offered them this opportunity? You know, I think I get the pushback a lot that, you know, some of us are are capable of being creative and problem solvers, and that's fine, but most of us just want to be told what to do. You know, I, I actually believe we as human beings all want to make a difference that matters, that's unique to us. And I, you know, I, I look at examples like the one I just gave, a, a famous one that's been uh, talked about for decades now is what Toyota did in their manufacturing operations with their frontline factory workers, where they, they redefined the work and said, yeah, you have some routine tasks you have to do, it's an assembly line, but your real job, your real job is to identify problems and solve those problems as soon as you see them. And if you can't solve the problems, we'll give you a cord, you pull it, we'll stop everything, we'll swarm you with a team of people to help you solve that problem, and you'll be a hero for having solved the problem. Passion levels in that workforce went way up because now they were making a difference. I mean, the problem I think that most people encounter in their work is they're just cogs in a machine. Anybody could do that work. Now they're making a difference. And that is exciting. I think to most people, I won't, I won't say everyone, but my belief is the vast majority of people hunger for that kind of opportunity to make a difference. Yeah, I remember I've worked at jobs where I thought that what I was doing was meaningless. So. I didn't want to do it. You know, you just felt like, what's the point? So I'm sure it's a lot better if you give people purpose and show them that what they're doing makes a difference. Yeah, it, it also brings in another uh, dimension of the research we've been doing around the future of work. In the future of work, everybody's been talking about reskilling. You know, the half-life of a skill is decreasing. You're going to have to learn new skills at a more and more rapid rate. That's the future of work. Okay, understood. Skills are important. Our belief, again, is there, there's an unaddressed opportunity, which is to cultivate capabilities. And to us, the distinction, I mean, it's ultimately all semantics, but when most people talk about skills, they're talking about something that has value in a very specific context, like how to operate this machine in this environment or how to process this kind of paper in this environment very valuable in that specific environment. For us, the contrast is capabilities have value in all environments, in all contexts. And what we mean by capabilities are things like curiosity, imagination, creativity, empathy. Those are things that are hugely valuable, and yet most institutions do not focus on cultivating those capabilities in their workers. It's all about skills. And our belief is that actually the, the people who, who cultivate those capabilities will learn skills at a more rapid rate than those who don't have the capability. Um, the pushback I get again is, well, some of us can be creative, but most of us are not creative. Well, my response to that is let's go to a playground and look at children six or seven years old. Show me one that isn't curious, creative, imaginative. We all had those capabilities. What happened? We went to school, and the lesson in school was just listen to the teacher. 
memorize what the teacher says and play it back, preparing them for routine tasks in the work environment. But our belief is capabilities are like muscles. You know, we all have muscles. Some of us choose to exercise them and they come out. Others don't and they atrophy. But guess what? The muscles are always there waiting to be exercised. Our belief is the same thing applies to capability. So what would be some ways to, you know, to encourage this? Do you have a weekly brainstorming session with different groups at the company and mix up the groups each week? I mean, what are best practices for, for fostering this? Yeah, again, we've done a lot of research on this, on this particular topic. It's, um, in fact, our current research is specifically on cultivating capabilities. But I, I think more generally, we've come to the view that a key part of, of work in the future, and today, frankly, is how to learn faster in, in work, whatever you're doing. Because if you're not learning faster in a rapidly changing environment, you are going to be uh, more under more and more stress. So in that context, we've come to believe that no matter how smart any one person is, they're going to be a lot smarter as part of a small work group that has deep trust-based relationships with each other and where they're constantly challenging each other and encouraging each other to come up with new and better approaches to the work that's being done. And so we've spent a lot of time looking at the practices in those work groups that can help to cultivate the capabilities, accelerate learning. I mean, we won't go into all of the, cap the practices. We call it business practice redesign. And again, there's a research report on that. But one of the practice areas has to do with what we call productive friction, that in the work groups that are learning fastest, they're constantly challenging each other. They're constantly asking questions. Why, why are we doing it this way? Why couldn't we do it this way? And, and trying to get to better and better outcomes. But they're doing it with respect for each other because they all share that commitment to getting to better impact. And so it's done with respect but it's constant challenging and that helps to learn people to learn faster and cultivate those capabilities. What, um, what kind of organizations would benefit from this? Like all of them, you know, what if you're, I don't know, what if you just work at a really basic place, a pizzeria, should you do anything like this or is this only reserved for larger organizations? No, no. Our, our belief is it applies in all organizations and all departments or groups in the organization. I mentioned Toyota factory workers, Another example, there's a company, um, a tomato processing company, one of the largest tomato processing companies in the U.S., but not a huge company. Um, and yet, and, and the workers in that company are, are mainly high school graduates. They're not even college graduates. They're, it's manual labor, factory work, field work. In that company, they have focused on cultivating these capabilities and in all parts of the organization, in the factory, in the field, everywhere, their belief is in a rapidly changing world, we are constantly encountering these new problems uh, or opportunities to create more value. When, you know, I, I'll just give a, another piece of data from the research we did. Um, we, we looked in, in large companies, uh, in, a, in a broad range of departments in those companies, and we found that on average, the headcount, the people in those departments were spending somewhere between 60 to 70% of their time on what we call exception handling. It was things that weren't anticipated, that weren't part of that 
process that had been defined with the process manual and where the scripts existed. And they were scrambling to try to figure out what do I do and viewing it as a distraction, as a problem, because their goal was to get back to the assigned tasks. And so our view, again, is that in a rapidly changing world, exceptions are going to proliferate everywhere. And all workers should have the opportunity to not only see them, but address them and have more impact. So getting back to the future of work, what do you think it will look like? Is it just going to be um, you know, companies paying attention to I know, the emotional well-being, the intellectual well-being of their employees and having them work on systems and improving their own jobs and their own lot? Or is it going to be something different? Well, I'd, I'd say that ultimately um, the primary focus should be on how to create more value for the key stakeholders, particularly the customers, but third parties and um, other parts of the organization. How, where and how can we have more impact that's meaningful to those stakeholders and be constantly challenging to see how to get to that next level of impact? Our belief is that's a win-win situation. It's a win for the company or the institution because they're gonna be having more impact and providing more value but it's also a win for the workers because they're going to get excited again that they have that they're making a difference that they're making an impact that matters to them and so it, it it's a it, it's a win on both sides of the equation and ultimately um you know it's going to help everyone to achieve more of their potential again one of our key themes in our work is if you look ahead into the future we have a expanding opportunities to achieve more of our potential. But our institutions are not organized to do that. We are organized around this model of scalable efficiency. How can we become more and more efficient at scale? And that's the key to success. The problem with scalable efficiency is it is a diminishing returns proposition. The more efficient I become, the, more, <laughs> the harder it is to get that next level of efficiency. If you focus instead on increasing value, that has infinite potential because there are unlimited needs on the part of the people that are being served. So as soon as you address one set of needs, there's another set of needs that can be addressed. And that expands the opportunity at a rapid rate and much more exciting over time. So is the future of work headed in the right direction or is it just really a continuation of let's get more efficient, uh, let's get some automation in here so that we have to have less employees and we could just be, you know, again, be more profitable, more efficient. Is any attention being paid to what you're saying? Yeah, I'd say that um, <laughs> the, uh, I'm going to generalize again, there are some exceptions, but in general, I, I say that when I deal with senior executives of particularly large companies around the future of work, the only two questions they have are, how quickly can I automate and how many jobs can I eliminate? It is all about scalable efficiency. Now, the, I, I should say as context, I am an optimist. So um, I actually believe that the current crisis we're in, the pandemic crisis, is actually going to be a significant catalyst to shift that discussion and conversation because they're going to see that the approaches that they've been using to get to efficiency are actually making them very fragile and vulnerable. And that the key to really being able not only to survive, thrive, but to survive in rapidly changing times with unexpected challenges is to cultivate this different form of work. 
and that's going to be, you know, I don't want to underestimate the, the challenge of making that shift, but at least I think there's going to be more and more motivation because I think we're seeing right now that the so-called efficient institutions that we've built are actually not very effective in dealing with unexpected challenges. Do you, I mean, what do you think will be either due to your intervention or not? I mean, what do you think are going to be the effects of, you know, the current shutdown and, I mean, in general, the, the changing nature of work and automation and, you know, smart systems and everything. What, what's your, what does the world look like in terms of work in the next, you know, year and then in the next maybe 20 years? No, well, there's no question. We're in a challenging time and the recovery is going to uh, require a significant effort. And a lot of it hinges on how quickly the consumers come back and really are, are wanting the products and services that they had purchased in the past. And so, the the adjustment phase is going to be is going to be challenging, but I do think that uh, in the end this is going to um, be a catalyst to help institutions to thrive because they're again if they're focused more focused on how to deliver more and more value back to the customer that they're serving and the third parties and communities they're in that's going to benefit everyone and that's going to lead to much healthier economy and society over time. Uh, that that will be much more resi- not resilient. I don't like the word resilient, but much more effective in responding to unex- both challenges and opportunities emerging at an accelerating rate. Any companies that you worked with that just like they, they blew your mind and what they're doing, and you're like, wow, this is crazy. This is really great. No, well, I I I can't go naming specific companies, but. I, I do. I will say I mentioned the tomato processor. Um, that blew my mind in the sense that again, it's a very traditional business. It's workers who are essentially manual labor. It's not knowledge workers sitting in offices with college degrees or PhDs. But every one of those workers were excited about the opportunity to make a difference because they were given the not only the latitude and permission, but the encouragement to really find problems and opportunities that needed to be addressed and addressing them, not just seeing them, but acting on them and, and having impact and learning from that impact. Right. And then um, probably last question, when people say, oh, machines are going to take our jobs, quote unquote, you know, what do we do? What's your answer to that? I mean, you've already given it, I guess, by, you know, elevating people that work within organizations. But, you know, when you run into that, what else do you say? Yeah, I, I certainly understand that. And I think um, many people understand that our institutions today are driven by that model of efficiency and that jobs are increasingly at risk because the key objective is just to eliminate jobs versus, again, the, the notion of, of focusing on opportunities to create more value. And I think that while it's understandable that there's that fear, um, of, of job loss, that there is an opportunity to head in a very different direction. And our belief is the institutions that, that make this shift, that shift to redefining work and cultivating capabilities and focusing on delivering more and more value uh, to the stakeholders are going to be the ones that thrive in the future. And the ones that hold on to that efficiency uh, model and just focus on cutting jobs they're going to marginalize themselves out of business. So yes, in the short term, there may be some job loss, 
driven by those kinds of, of institutions. But in the end, <laughs> the institutions that are going to thrive and grow are going to be the ones that, that make this transition and, and redefine the work and create an environment for workers that's going to be much more stimulating and satisfying than the ones they have today. Yeah, automation's okay, but it's just, I mean, it's not human and it's just mediocre at best. I, it seems like you always need a human layer on top of any automation to make things a lot better. You know, like, and even at McDonald's, I remember there was one where they put in these big kiosks that you can order from and the people just handed you the food. But at least if there's a problem, you could talk to a person and say, hey, you know, uh, the French fries are all burned or whatever it is. I mean, you know, especially remotely, automation, I don't know, there's no humanness to it. There's no exceptions to it. It's just cold and dead and again mediocre it doesn't do it doesn't do a great job yeah so I'll i can say, see a, you know, a company that that has a human element to it would be far superior absolutely and i i will say one of my favorite quotes is from the painter pablo picasso <laughs> many decades ago he made the observation that computers are useless he said all they can do is provide you with the answers <laughs> And it was kind of interesting because if you reflect on that, what he was saying was what's really valuable and important are the questions. What are the questions that matter? And yes, the machines can help us provide the answers, but it's seeing the question and uh, focusing on the question that becomes the real value add. And again, our belief is that's where humans, again, with curiosity, we are naturally questioning. I mean, again, as children, certainly, and, you know, some of us continued that into our adulthood, but all of us have the capability of cultivating that again and being much more focused on what are the questions that matter. So what's going to be your role or what is your role now? What are you doing in the future of work? Well, I, you know, we're continuing to do work, uh, our research work. We, we have uh, pursued research in, in this broad topic. Our, our, ch our, Harder for the Center for the Edge is to um, address, uh, to identify unseen opportunities for uh, for CEOs that should be on their agenda but are not, and to to do the research to persuade them to put it on the agenda. So we do the research, then we actually work on building awareness. We go out and speak at conferences, write, we we host meetings where we introduce the perspectives and the opportunities. Then we work to build alignment among executives so they, they converge around the, the opportunity and then act on it. And we, we work with them to, uh, as coaches and counselors on, on acting in ways that can get more and more impact and how to learn from that action, not just take action, but to learn and, and get better and better with the impact. Good. John, what's the best way for people to engage with you? Should they start with your books? Or where can they go? Uh, many, many options. I, I Certainly, I've written many books. The most recent one was The Power of Pull. Would certainly encourage uh, anybody who's interested to read that book. I'm very active on social media, LinkedIn, uh, Twitter, Facebook. Um, you can find me there. I post a lot on, on, that, on those. I have a blog uh, at johnhagel.com. And then the Center for the Edge website has all our research reports. So many ways to reach out. Okay. Well, very good. John, I'm, I'm glad you're thinking about this stuff and uh, working literally to make people's working experience in their lives better. So thank you for coming on the podcast. Well, thank you. I appreciate the interest and 
hope to continue the conversation with some of the people uh, hearing the podcast for sure. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.